0: Well, we're excited about getting into the topic of God's providence and human responsibility on this panel. And so brothers, thank you for participating in this. And as I've already talked to you all about this, so you all know, we like to turn these into very much a discussion. And so feel free to ask questions as they come up. If you see insights as we're having the conversation about um, implications of these doctrines or other things that you've been thinking about, feel free to talk about those. But we did uh, think that it would be wonderful to take some time to consider God's providence and human responsibility. Of course, this is just a straightforward question that is always there. If God is in control of all things, what is the place for human responsibility? And then how should we think about that? If people object to it and say, is there not a conflict? And then particularly thinking about God's providence in our times over the last year, over the year that we're soon to uh, enter into, or what is our responsibility and how are we, sh- how should we be thinking about God's Providence. So, why don't we begin with just considering uh, the doctrines themselves—God's providence and human responsibility, dealing with God's providence. James, I don't know if you would say this is a simple doctrine or a complex doctrine. Um, I don't know, but uh, when we say God's providence, what do we mean? Just really quick on that. Doctrines
1: can be complex. God can't. So that's that's my cover. Uh, Yeah. All right. (laughs) It's
0: complex. What is God's providence?
2: God's providence is his operation in history of his eternal decrees.
0: Amen. (laughs) (laughs) All in favor? Second? Aye. (laughs) Well, I
1: I think we could say it's God working. uh, Paul says in Ephesians 1.11 that God is the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, he says it in the framework of salvation and he's talking about the hope that we have of an inheritance and we might ask the question how can i be sure that i will actually inherit all of these things that he has ordained for me in christ jesus uh and then he he adds this in as sort of um fortitude because he's the one who doesn't just work some things for some people sometimes but he's the one who works all things in accordance with the counsel of his will so that our god is If everything, if we live, move, and have our being in him, if he upholds all things by the word of his power, if he's the one, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 46, who declares the end from the beginning, saying, I will accomplish all my good pleasure, he's saying that to people in exile under hostile kings, and he's saying it uh, actually to explain the the rise of Cyrus, a bird of prey, shortly thereafter. So you have this idolatrous bird of prey who's going to come down on the Babylonian Empire with, with great carnage, and God says that he calls that bird of prey, like whistles him in to do his work. And I think it's reassuring the people that when the wicked prevail, it's a false interpretation for God's people to think that that means God is losing to just that extent. He works all things after the counsel of his will. No one can, I, I love Nebuchadnezzar, this is my all time favorite. Nebuchadnezzar's words after his restoration, where he says that God does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, and there he means demonic, uh, demonic and angelic powers, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stop his hand, or say, and then it says, or say to him, what have you done? So when God does what God does, he doesn't come into the review panel to see if it was a good shoot, so to speak. No one can stop his hand or say to him, what have you done? I think this is, this is the providence of God at work in our, in our world, in our lives.
3: Jared, not to really add anything doctrinally to what was just stated, but um, just as, as a reference, at least for many of us, the second London Confession of Faith, chapter 5, has, has a quite extensive doctrine of providence, divine providence, and lays out some <clears throat> boundaries for that that would be helpful if folks want to read that and refer to it later. Uh, But in my own congregation, being from California and living through what's been lived through in the last several months, we've, I actually did a series on divine providence um, over Zoom (laughs) in the evenings, on Thursday evenings when we were first shut down by the governor and trying to figure out how to meet, which is a particularly difficult thing for our church because we rent facilities and no one would rent to us in violation of um, the governor's order and so we were stuck with that for some time trying to figure out how to meet and so how do you comfort people when they're watching in in the case of especially at the height of the pandemic watching over three million dollar excuse me three million jobs disappear per week right when they're when they're watching businesses shuttered and churches shuttered and they wonder what the future holds and there's quite a bit of turmoil, and even in the early days, a lot of fear about what is this virus, we, we all really um, recognizably didn't know. And I think in the first few weeks, thought it was fairly reasonable for the government to say, hey, let's pull back on everything just in case, because we didn't know. Um, but how do you speak in the face of that as a pastor? So I just, I just wanted to spend time in divine providence with my congregation just to push them back to something like Matthew 6 say Jesus tells us not to be anxious. One of the things he says is to look at the birds of the air. And what's interesting is that word emblepo in the, in the Greek is this, this word um, to consider, to look long in the face. It's the, it's the same word that's used in Acts one eleven when they stood gazing into the sky as Christ ascended. And, and, and Christ uses this word to to look long, to consider the birds of the air. And so I told our congregation, what the doctrine of divine providence does is it presses us to go out and consider the birds. You've just gone out and said, look at how the Lord is providing for them. Right at the, the root of that word providence is the word to provide. The Lord not only created all things, but the Lord is carrying all things to their proper end. He's providing for all things along the way. and. And so I wanted them to consider, just go out and look at nature and the way God is providing for birds that don't, they don't store up in barns. They don't have jobs but the Lord provides for them. And the Lord is gonna provide for us as well and we, we need to keep that, we need to be ever mindful of that, just meditate on God's providence. Even in creation, the things that have been made just to meditate upon what he is doing in bringing all things to an end, so their proper end. So I just press them in that way.
0: Very good. The Baptist Catechism, there is a Baptist Catechism. It's a wonderful resource to take advantage of. We have it up on founders.org. It can be found, I believe, in one of the tagged books that we produce. But it says, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all of his creatures and all their actions. And the reason I know that is because we have a Baptist Catechism CD where there's actually songs. They've taken every one of the Baptist Catechism questions and turned them into songs. I don't know if it's available out there in the store or not. On founders.org, it is there. Um, Jim Scott Work did that, and we sing it with our kids. I'm not going to sing it right now, but it was totally in my head as I was saying it. And it has a wonderful way of just driving these truths in there. But preserving, governing all of his creatures, all their actions. That's God's providence. We confess that. So birds, caterpillars, human beings, vehicles, every single thing, as Spurgeon said, even the particle of dust floating in the sunbeam, it is all controlled uh, by God's will. That's God's providence. Briefly on human responsibility, we often talk about God's providence in relationship to human responsibility. When we say that, what do we mean by human responsibility in light of God's providence?
4: That we are moral creatures created by God. God, and he has authority over us, and he has given us commands, responsibilities of how we are to live before him in his world.
0: So we have to obey. Yeah. We trust God. Well, here's the question. Is there not a conflict? If God controls all things, and I am a thing, then how is it that I can be responsible if he indeed controls me?
2: Well, that has to do with the very nature of what... moral responsibility is in <clears throat> our paradigm for all things and for defining all things moral in the world is what is God like himself? And the question is, can God be other than he is? And the answer, of course, we've already seen is no. Can God decree other than he decrees? The answer is no, because his decrees have in mind his own glory and he perceives his own glory and his glory will work out in the perfect way. And so that which he decrees is, is that which arises out of his very nature. But God is the freest of all beings. He's most responsible of all beings. He is the most morally perfect of all beings, but he is also absolutely determined by the very character that, uh, that constitutes him. And so if God is the paradigm for what moral responsibility is, then if we have a determining, a corruption of heart in us, that does not diminish our responsibility at all. In fact, that is the very thing upon which our condemnation is based, in which our, all of our actions are based. If our uh, actions uh, do not arise out of a predisposition of heart, if they simply are accidents, then there's no responsibility at all in something that is purely an accident that was not intended. And so to the degree that our actions, as Jesus said, out of the heart precede the issues of life, to the degree that our actions do arise out of our hearts, and our hearts are those things that are corrupt, and it is the heart that gives rise to these things, then it's the very nature of our being determined morally that establishes our responsibility.
1: I'll, I'll add with that, in the doctrine of creation, uh, even, even apart from the positive revelation of Scripture, there's a moral obligation that's laid upon the creature just in so much as he is a creature and I'm thinking of Romans 1:20, where it says that the invisible attributes and the eternal power and the divine nature are clearly seen through the things that are made and that yet men suppress the truth and unrighteousness but Paul goes on to say that they did not honor him as God and then it adds this little line and I think this shouldn't be missed or give thanks. And there's a, there's a sense in which if he is the one by whom and through whom and to whom are all things, things to which even nature witnesses, nature itself, as it were, puts us on the spot uh, at the very least uh, to say thank you and to live our lives in grateful dependence upon him and service to him. And that's, a, that's an obligation of the creature qua creature just being creature puts us uh, in that position of obligation. So the fact that God decrees the end from the beginning and is at work in all things to accomplish His purposes does not in any way alleviate the fact that there are obligations laid upon, particularly His rational creatures, angels and men, that there are obligations laid upon us to order our hearts and our adoration and our desires to... God as the one from whom we receive all things and unto whom are all things and by whom are all things. So that, I think that obligation is an obligation that is given um, specific contours in something like the Ten Commandments. Um, there are more, there's further specification. There are more than the Ten Commandments in Scripture that give us direction on how to live as grateful servants of the King, but it's, it's nature itself and our place as creatures within it that make that moral obligation um, an unquestioned reality. So it's not a question of, are we obligated? It's a question of, did you give yourself life, breath, or anything? Paul says, what do you have that you have not received? Uh, That in itself gives us a moral obligation to love him, serve him out of gratitude to him.
2: Philippians, Paul said, uh, "Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to His good pleasure." And this ties in with <clears throat> what James was saying earlier about the simplicity of God—that He, He is, He exists as He is, He doesn't change, He's not acted upon. But, but we are, and so there, there are various aspects of God's immutable, simple nature that act, it seems, in a partitive way upon the creatures, because we are finite. We, we do exist in parts, and so we experience his mercy in some situations. We experience his wrath in some situations. We experience what we call his love in some situations, although love and mercy and wrath all arise out of his, his infinite goodness, but we experience them in this, in this partitive way. And In the same way, our holiness is not something that is intrinsic, although God intends his people to be holy. Uh, he has chosen us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ. And so his eternal purpose for his people is to make them holy. As Peter says, the Lord says, be ye holy for I am holy. And so as God operates in us, he operates in us according to his truth. He operates uh, in us according to the energy that he provides. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling that salvation that he's given you should be manifest in your actions and so you're consistently working out and, and more and more you will reflect uh, the wholeness and the, and the holiness of God as these things are worked out. Uh, but these are not done in an uh, energy that is ours itself, but there's a secret operation of God in which he is working to produce that in us. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure." so God's purpose for his people is that they use the means that he has given with a trust in his internal and sovereign operations that we might reflect his own character uh, in our actions. And this will be accomplished in a way that is consistent with our temporality, with our finiteness, uh, and it will be incomplete as long as we're in this life Uh, And finally, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is when he comes. Jared, do
3: you mind if I pose a question to James? Because I could make a statement, but anything I say is gonna be ripped off from him and and in a less eloquent way stated. So I'd I'd rather I grant that you may ask that question. I'd rather just pose the question to him than answer it myself. James, you, you 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 asked or you made the statement that, quoting from Ephesians 1.11, that God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And when we look at scripture and we talk about the way in which God is the cause of all things or the first cause of all things, we state that in our confession. We state he's the primary cause, the first cause of all things, but then we have this little caveat, without removing or taking away the liberty of second causes. And right. so, so what are we getting at when we use that kind of language that he's the primary cause of all things, but, he, but not in such a way that he takes away the liberty of second causes, nor in that he's the author of evil.
1: Right, that, you threw an author of evil right at the end. Like that's a little, <laughs> like that's a little, that's a little question.
3: You can probably say it in a in a non-simple sentence. <laughs> I
1: don't think I have another sentence but that. So, <laughs> I, I would say, uh, I, I would say with regard to the first, you're talking about the historic doctrine of divine concurrence, uh, and concurrence. Some will even say cooperation. I don't mind that language uh, as long as we understand that we're not talking about collateral cooperation so let me illustrate uh and i'm taking this illustration from aquinas but it'll work um if chad and i needed to get a canoe down to the river two men lifting a boat he says can cooperate in a coordinate way and so let's just say that i do 80 percent of the lifting and chad does 20 percent of the lifting (laughs) i mean i yeah. It could be the other way around as well, um, but there's a, there's a sense in which we not only, cooperate just means to work together. Not only are we two agents working to produce a single effect, the movement of the boat down to the down to the river's edge, but there's there's also a sense in which in our cooperation we are operating collaterally. So there's a sense in which. Chad is operating independent of my operation, coordinated with my operation, but his operation doesn't depend upon my operation. He's operating just to the extent that I'm not. So the 20% of lifting I'm not doing, uh, Chad is picking up and together we get 100% of the work done and the, you know, the boat gets to the, to the water's edge. Uh, and I would, call that, um, I would call that collateral cooperation. Um, whereas when we talk about cooperation or concurrence of God and the creature, we're really talking about a subordinate cooperation where the creature is operating as a cause, but not as an independent cause of God, but rather as a caused cause. So if, uh, God says to the children of Israel and he brings them into the land, do not forget it is I who give you the strength to make wealth. Okay. And then a man takes the gifts that God has given them and he puts them into practice and builds buildings and plants fields and gets a gainful return upon his investment, and he amasses wealth. Uh, And we could say, who earned this wealth? And it wouldn't be a wrong statement to say, this man did. Um, This man worked and tilled the field and fertilized and pruned and hunted out all of the the pests and brought in this harvest— And yet, in so much as that man lives, moves and has his being from God and has life, breath and all things from God, there is no harvesting and there is no pruning and there is no planting apart from God at work in him to operate. So he's a a cause, a genuine cause, but he's a caused cause, he's a dependent cause. So that God is at work and the man is at work, but God is actually at work in the working of the man. Um, So that what we're not trying to say with divine providence is um, God will just fill in all the available space and he'll do all the work everyone else isn't already doing. Um, God is doing some of his work independent of the cooperation of creatures, sometimes miracles and things like this, and sometimes he's doing it in and through the created operation of creatures. Uh, and I think in that respect then, we can say uh, to the, the Philippians 2 passage, when God says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is I who, is, it is I who is, am at work in you. Actually, the reason that your working and God's working don't cross cancel each other is because God is not working in the same way you are. He's working to make you be and move and live and he's ordering, he's ordering the application of those, those faculties toward a certain end um, so that God is at work in you in a, you said primary cause, first cause. God is at work in you in a first cause way, making you be, live, and move in so much as he does that in us, we are instruments and tools in his hand. But that doesn't, that doesn't obviate our created responsibility and work as created agents. God's an uncreated agent. We're created agents who work
4: in and through His power and might. This is a great doctrine too to help us uh, get our minds ordered right regarding the world that actually is and how God has ordered the world that we are to live in. Because so often we fall into these ways and patterns of thinking. That things have to make sense to me or they have to line up with my standards of rationality in order for me to accept them. And if they don't, well, then I can dismiss them as being irrational. But that's simply not true. This is God's world. He created it. We're in it. And we will live well in it to the degree that we're able to get our minds uh, conformed to His mind that He's revealed to us. And so the world that He's revealed to us is a world in which He is absolutely sovereign, decreeing every last detail of anything that happens, and we are completely responsible. And folks will often say, well, that that doesn't make sense. I don't, well, okay, then you just got more work to do to get your mind submitted to the world that is. This is the way God's ordered it. And if we can come to terms with that, and we we learn all of this from the Scripture, and what the Scripture teaches us is that we're completely responsible. So, yes, God is absolutely sovereign. Nothing is going to happen in this world uh, outside of, apart from His decree. That's, that's certain. And yet, I am responsible to live the way He's called me to live. So if, as pastors especially, we can help our people to learn to see this, well, it, it functions in two ways. One, it keeps us from indolence on the one hand or a, a type of uh, fatalism that says, well, hey, you know, if it's going to be, it's going to be. We won't live. You know, it doesn't matter what we do because God's sovereign. Well, that's deadly wrong. But we'll also save from despair over here when things don't go the way we would like for them to go. And when we see evil in the world, even gross evil that comes to our lives personally, that can appear on one level as being meaningless, gratuitous, this has no purpose. It might feel that way, but the Word of God tells us that can't be true. It is purposeful. And this good God who gave up his son for us is the very one who did not allow that evil to come into your life without it first being filtered through his hands and his determination to work it together for your good and his glory as you trust him. And, and that's, that's hard whenever you're living through it. And so the best time to teach your people the doctrine of God's providence is not waiting until some tragedy occurs but to begin to teach it as, as we see it in the Scripture, and then to bring the cross of Jesus into the equation as the paradigm. Because no matter what it is that's happened to me, no matter what great evil has occurred to me, or to my loved ones with the, which I hate and I rage against because it is so evil, when I take that unrighteous, evil action and bring it to the cross, well, I, I say this reverently, but it pales into insignificance in comparison to what happened to the only righteous man who ever lived in the world. What happened on the cross is the greatest miscarriage of, ju- of justice in human history when you're looking at it in terms of how people are to live in God's world. It, it was a heinous act of injustice. It was the murder of the only righteous man who ever lived. And where was God in that? Well, God was the master of ceremonies. God was doing that. God was doing His deepest work of redemption in that event. And if I can believe that and see that, then whenever evil comes to my life or those of my love, I can believe, based on what He's done in the cross, that He is working in this as well. And He's gonna keep His promises to work everything together for my good, His glory, because He is sovereign. That doesn't alleviate my responsibility, but it does provide incredible comfort and
2: hope uh, going forward in the wake of such evil. It's amazing how much uh, this, <clears throat> these ideas of human responsibility and divine sovereignty and the certainty of God's decrees come out in uh, how much uh, Peter matured uh, during the, the 40 days after the ascension. And Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and then he's preaching after he performs miracles and after he's been uh, <clears throat> beaten. But on one occasion, he's talking to the Pharisees and those uh, who are... Responsible for putting Jesus to death, he said, "You, you took the Author of Life and put Him to death, but God raised Him from the dead." Uh, the the juxtaposition of that language is so intriguing to me. The Author of Life you put to death, but God raised Him from the dead. So, so human responsibility in in the the realm of the incarnation and the purpose of God toward His beloved Son, even though He was the one that was immutably the giver of life. He is not the one uh, in any sense who was at the mercy of people. Nevertheless, he put himself into a position by the incarnation where his life could be taken from him. And so the author of life was killed by those, but God's evaluation of him was completely different. God raised him from the dead. You put him to death, God raised him from the dead. And then later, Peter brings up these whole ideas of the mystery of divine providence and human responsibility uh, In the text that you all know very well, he was delivered up to you by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, and you took him with wicked hands and crucified him. So, uh, uh, referring to Tom's looking at, at our uh, trials compared to what happened to Christ, that, that p- passage of scripture, I think, really crystallizes that. Entire idea that God has a determinate counsel; uh, He has set His heart upon these events that they will happen, and yet those who were the means by which they happen were wicked in their in their actions.
1: I would go off that and make a, a formal and material distinction uh, that I think that sinks. And Chad laughs at me. Of course, he would yeah, yeah. make a material and formal distinction. Well, let me let me make it anyway. Uh, laugh if you want to yeah. um, that, that that singular act nailing, nailing the author of life the Lord of glory to the cross at the level of human intentionality was wicked so that there, there was a formal wickedness uh, a depravity in the will of those who, who performed that miscarriage of justice on the human level and yet with regard to divine intentionality It was the revelation of his inscrutable wisdom, goodness, love, and justice at the material level, one and the same event, but at the formal and intentional level, wicked men in that event intending and doing wickedly, God at work in that event intending and doing the most good. So the greatest evil in the history of the world becomes at one and the same time in the hands of God and at the level of divine intentionality, um, the greatest good and kindness ever done to the human race. And I think of it as sort of a, that that to me is sort of an exposition and an enlarging of what uh, Joseph says to his brothers after they had sold him into slavery. And we know this text well in in Genesis 50, where Jacob dies and the brothers are fearful that Joseph is now going to come down on them for selling him off at 17. And he says, do not be afraid am I in God's place as for you you meant evil against me and there's that there's that intentionality language in it and that's where the sin was actually Herman Bobbing says the will I like Herman Bobbing by the way I just I'm not just throwing that he's a reformed dogmatics Bobbing says that the will is sin's showplace intentionality is where sinfulness the heart and the the uh, intention is where sin lies, or the failure of intention is where sin lies. The works that we do just sort of manifest the intentionality of the heart. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's not that God, God, when he says it there, you meant it, he's talking about being sold into bondage. The same it God intends, and they intend, and yet God intends the it for good, and they intend the it for evil. And I think that's the, it's that coincidence of a single event in which there are wicked, created agents at work doing evil, there is, in the same event, God at work doing good and preserving many souls alive by that event. And I think that's the mystery of it, so that God isn't just swooping in and God isn't doing other things after the evil thing. It's, it, this is the great mystery. In and through the evil that men do, God in that very thing, not evilly, that is a word actually, is doing, uh, is doing and accomplishing his good pleasure uh, and our good. And that's, that's really the concurrence where there's not a competing of causality or a sharing of causality, but each is operating uh, in a different way intentionally, God according to his most holy purposes
2: and man uh, in sinful ways. I think that particular event that you've referred to, <clears throat> uh, Joseph had the benefit of being able to see the good that was in that. And that's one question I think we all ask, isn't it? Because there are a lot of things that happen and we don't think we see good in them immediately. And so our, our reflex is, why Why did this happen? And I think this is, a, this is a part of the image of God in us, that we know that there's purpose. We really want to know what the purpose is. And of course, we have a revealed statement that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he foreknew, he also uh, uh, predestined, whom he predestined, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. So what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? So what, what we struggle with sometimes is wanting to find out how is it that we find the benevolent intention of God in things that in, the, in their immediate occurrence seem to be destructive. How, how do we do that? And I think this is, this is a question that historians deal with a lot because there are, there are differing views among historians as to whether or not you can actually discern divine providence in historical events. There are some who say, no, you can't. You're cheating. You bring something in from outside the world and you won't convince other historians if you, if you do it that way because uh, you've got to use the same factors that everyone uses. But I think that that's not really a a very Christian way to deal with the events of history because we have these uh, promises in Scripture as to that God actually does work things according to His own purpose, and He does work them for the good of those who are called according to His purpose, and we have Joseph actually discerning the good that happened, and we also see the whole witness of Scripture that there is a massive providence of God that leads to the coming of Christ. And so it, it's not a vain question to want to know, how does this actually operate for my good? And when, when John gives evidences of, of salvation, uh, when he gives the things by which we can test as to whether or not we have been born again, he is assuming that there is an ability on the part of us in using our mind and examining things and looking at it as it relates to Scripture if we can discern if there are the genuine fruits of repentance and faith and the new birth in our lives. Otherwise, the whole purpose of John writing 1 John saying, I've written these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. This calls for an investigation of the events of our lives and determining that they are the result of God's gracious and benevolent providence in our lives. Uh, and if, if we can't do that, then the whole purpose of John in writing 1 John is just is, is vain. So in, in large events of history, we would confess according to the doctrine that we put forth that everything happens according to the providence of God. And so it's true that you can't say, ah, that was providential as if that makes it a special event because everything is providential. What we're wanting to know is what is the evidence of a benevolent providence here? And I think that's, that's the point at which we, we look and say, all right, will this produce Christ likeness in my life? If God is working in me and in a what word should I use in a, colla- not a collateral way, but in a, sub- in a, in a cooperating, co- in but a subordinate. a concursive way or something okay like that. oh, yeah. that's good. Yep. Yeah. If, <laughs> if, if I allow, if I allow that uh, to produce holiness in me. Uh, so we are, when we get to the issues of providence, it's a very practical issue because it has to do with the way we examine God's actions in our lives and we take them and we seek to reduce them into something that will produce godlikeness and holiness and gratitude
0: to Him. That's just right. There are practical um, implications and pastoral implications, and with the time that we have left, let's push in that direction on pastoral implications. One is, I'll start, and then you guys can chime in. One is, when we consider God's providence, there is, of course, still the flesh within us that would love to take that doctrine and say, you know, if He's really in control of everything, then you know maybe I can do something wrong. Or when I do something wrong, I can say, you know, um, who is God to find fault with me? I mean, he's the one who's in control. I see some of you shaking your heads. No, no, that's right. You love Jesus. You already know the answer. You already know probably what text I'm going to cite. Romans chapter nine is a wonderful passage to think about how um, when we consider God's providence and then our own shortcomings, we are never in a position to say, who is he to find fault? And actually, the way the Apostle Paul deals with the question is to, is to humble us, so humility and submission in light of God's great providence. This is Romans chapter 9, verse 17 says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The text is very clear that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Verse 19 of Romans 9 says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And if we're honest, that's a good question. That is a logical question. The Apostle Paul knows that why people would ask it. He says, this is a question you just said that you hardened Pharaoh's heart, that you are the one who is controlling all things, including the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So. Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? And we expect some, you know, wonderful, rational, logical response. And he says, "But who are you, a man, to answer back to God?" And the sons and daughters of God go, "Oh, okay, I see." Father told me to go to bed. He told me to go to bed. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, humility, and it's glorious because. He is God. We are not. He is infinite. We are finite. And in these, um, in, in His glorious providence, we can rejoice and we can trust Him. And any kind of fleshliness that would rise up in us to say, "Well, who is He to find fault with me?" The answer comes: You're not getting the answer to this. You're just, "Who are you, a man, to answer back to God?" Remember who you are. It's, it's humility and submission. Other pastoral implications?
4: Yeah, and I, let me let me underscore too with just the the important doctrinal significance of that Romans nine passage. That argument that Paul anticipates; those questions make no sense if God's eternal decree is not true. If God's not absolutely sovereign, then those protests make no sense. Now, nobody would ever question that. So it's only in the context of what we're talking about and God's providence with His decree being infallible, immutable, it will come to pass uh, being real. And the, uh, you know, the pastoral implications of it, are just, it's how we live our lives. It's, it, it's coming back to the ways that God has demonstrated His faithfulness, His goodness, His incredible grace to us throughout all of human history. And there are those things that look like colossal, Disasters like Joseph being sold into slavery. I mean, just try to put yourself in his spot. You know what it must have felt like for him to go through everything he did, and yet God enabled him to see before the end of his life. Yes, he did this for good, and we see that time and again with Paul being arrested, and he wanted to go to Rome. Well, he got to Rome, and he didn't have to pay for it because they they took him there. Um, but yeah, the government ticket, you know. And you, you see it with Jude's letter. You know, Jude had a. a, a, a certain type of letter he wanted to write but because of difficulties that I'm sure he would never have chosen that he recognized he had to write a different letter, letter and as a result we get the great letter of Jude that we have in the Bible so God's demonstrated time and again how he rules and overrules in the world and it keeps coming back to the cross you see it in the cross if you if you if we can get that that sense of how God was working in the cross as he's revealed it to us then That, that truth can shape us so that what you just said is, yeah, okay, I don't understand this, but this is what God says to me. This is still the way of my responsibility. This is still the way to walk in His commandments. And it's hard and it's painful, but I know He's good. I know He He has not withheld His own son from me. He is not going to withhold anything else from me that's for my good. And so it, that's faith. I mean, that's the exercise of faith. And we grow as God doesn't give us all the answers that we might like to have so that it, quote, makes sense to us and we, therefore, are trusting something other than what God has revealed.
0: Final thoughts? Pastoral implications?
2: Implications? Uh, We probably don't have time to jump into this particular question, but just for thought, are there issues in history that by God's providence, clarify things for us that in our exegesis of Scripture were very fuzzy. And then events happen in which one option sort of comes out on the top, another option doesn't, and it becomes very clear. Uh, for example, is it right to revolt against a king? Uh, we're to be sub- submissive to the authority. We're, we're to suffer under them unless they're asking us to do something that is opposed to the will of God. Uh, And yet there were uh, sufficient uh, political resistances to the King of England in the 1770s that led to a declaration of independence and led to the Revolutionary War. And so is the Revolutionary War a clarifying aspect about certain things that relate to submission to the authority of a king who has said that we have the right to bind you in all things whatsoever. Uh, is that right or not? Did providence, uh, I've been reading the sermon by Richard Furman called on the 26th Anniversary of the Declaration of Independence written in 1802, called America's Deliverance and Duty. And he has six or seven different evidences that the revolution was clearly a result of the benevolent providence of God. And that is used as a part of the justification of it that God entered in and God clarified these issues and God gave us uh, victory. And therefore we have religious liberty and we have a place where we've, we have free churches in a free state. We have the right to preach and the right to defend and, the, and we have no established church and all of those things. And so all of these evidences of God's providence, of God's benevolence providence, cleared up what was a, a very... Um, Contentious exegetical issue between Anglican Tories and Baptist dissenters. It, did God's providence clear it up?
0: <laughs> you I think know he was right. You know, about, I don't know if we have time for this. I, 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 know that. I
3: feel like you're I, you're, I, you're up, Chad. I feel like I'm just the I'm just the pastor sitting between one of the greatest Baptist historians ever. <laughs> And one of the greatest evidences that Pre- Presbyterians don't have all the smart people. So, <laughs> I, I'm just, that's how I feel. And I'm, by the providence of God, I own that shirt. I didn't put that one on right now. So, I'm feeling pretty good about a few things. I'm not sure how to answer your question, though. Do <laughs> I, 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 you want to answer that one or can I take it a different direction? You, you have oh, an answer for him? No, I'm going to let you take it. Um, I, you know, I think... Um, I'm gonna go a little different direction. and We'll okay. see what James does. Yeah,
2: it was basically- it's, a good,
3: it's a good question. We can all chew on for a while. Um, I, I think as a pastor in California, um, watching what's happened in the last year, and feeling the, I'm sure, imagining the angst that many of you all have. Um, I don't know if you saw, um, if you guys ever see the Los Angeles Times, but I do. They just ran a headline and the headline was about the Biden plan, and the Los Angeles Times headline was "Make America California Again." And I thought, boy, that's going to make some of y'all angsty, right? <laughs> Let me just say, on behalf of the Christians in California, we are we are sorry. <laughs> What's your coming? Your, the upside of being from California, though, in God's providence—that's right. Upside of being from God's. Uh, from California, God's providence though, is, is we're already used to what you're all about to face. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> how, 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 do we, how do we endure this? Um, and I, I, I think I've come back to Psalm 33 again and again this year. I, I just want to read that and, and for you all to hear some of that. I'll, I'll really start in verse four. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. That's really good news when Gavin Newsom is your governor. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope
0: in you. Amen. Amen. That's a wonderful place for us to close. Thank you, brothers, for being on this panel and thank you for being here to listen let me pray and we'll close out father we give you praise for you indeed are our help and our shield our hearts are glad in you because we trust in your holy name and our souls do wait for you knowing that you are working all things for your glory and for our good so strengthen us and help us to trust you for we pray this in christ's name amen